0: In the Buddha's teaching, one of the uh, guidelines he gave to the uh, the monks and nuns of his order, his followers, in terms of offering teachings, was that uh, he said that they should not give a Dharma talk to people who were lying down unless they were sick or injured. And so um, I'm not a monk, fortunately, in this case, or a nun. Um, I'm not ordained. But I invite you just to consider the... The value of um, sitting up, if you feel your body is able to do so, and if it's really not able to, it's fine to be lying down. But generally, and in some places, one would be asked to sit up unless one was sick or injured. And uh, I think there's something something powerful about what's being expressed in that in that intention. And so it's like if we really do need to take care of the body in this way, it can be done. It's okay. And if it's more just a kind of a going for the more comfortable option, then sometimes there's a value in sitting upright. And uh, there's a kind of respect being extended to the teaching and to what's being offered in that. And apart from that, I think it's a sense of supporting each other as well and being upright for it. So thank you. And I'd like to speak this evening about the power of loving kindness. In this Dharma tradition, the Buddha's teachings, it's often referred to as a, a wisdom tradition, which is kind of an interesting idea it gives rise often to the sense that maybe the practice of loving-kindness or the quality of kindliness itself is somehow secondary to wisdom, that we're really here all about insight. uh, In fact, this is not so. The Buddha was even on one occasion um, responding to one of his followers, Ananda, who, who, who said to him, is it not true that half of our practice is for the cultivation and for the development of loving-kindness. And the Buddha's response was, no, it's not true to say this. In fact, it's true to say that all of our practice is for the cultivation of loving-kindness. So I'd like to just consider what this might mean and uh, the significance and place of this quality that we've been engaging with in different ways. The Buddha spoke in his uh, in his teaching about what it is that allows us to connect with the quality of loving kindness of the sense of friendliness of caring of well wishing that we 've spoken about and that we 've practiced together, extending it to others, extending it to ourselves, and of the many things that could be pointed to like you know feeling comfortable and feeling safe and um, having a sense of uh, warmth in the heart. All of these conditions, of course, can be part of it. <clears throat> but what the Buddha pointed to, he said, the proximate cause, the condition that is closest to or from, that, that is most immediately preceding the arising of friendliness, of love and kindness, is the quality of appreciation. And I think it's a... A really interesting teaching to reflect upon appreciation what that means for us of course we we understand it it's that sense of being able to acknowledge and affirm what we what we value in something to see what we care about what we value what we appreciate we could say but in fact it has a number of meanings in the english language at least and I find them all very relevant to what supports loving-kindness. And And, uh, we can understand appreciation, that word, as meaning having some gratitude. I appreciate what you've done for me. It's sort of like we're grateful for something we've received. And where there's gratitude, there's a natural sense of well-wishing that arises for us. And this is why often when when we reflect on who we might easily be able to practice or turn the heart towards with this orientation of friendliness bringing someone to mind who we feel gratitude towards, who we've received something from and we might talk about as a benefactor, someone who's been generous and towards us. We find our heart perhaps more open, more available in that way. Appreciation also means to value, and that's perhaps the most um, immediate and uh, sort of primary meaning we might have given it in this context, to be able to value something. To the sense of appreciation that leads to kindness, to friendliness, to well-wishing, is coming out of seeing that which we value, that which is precious in another. It also has the meaning, of course, appreciation also is in the sense of the verb to appreciate, is to actually become more valuable. So when we when we give appreciation to something it actually becomes of more value and that the process of extending loving kindness to something connecting in that way has the effect of in fact deepening the value that it holds or that person holds for us in our life so there's this, this, this quality of the way that appreciation points to the possibility of what is of value, what is precious somehow being enhanced, being increased and the the fourth meaning, there might be more, these are the four I thought of, um, the fourth meaning of appreciation is to understand. When Oh, I appreciate something. It's like, oh, I appreciate your perspective. It doesn't mean I like it. It means I understand it. I see where you're coming from. That sense of appreciation. And very, very much at the heart of, what allows our hearts to open is our ability to understand, to truly see what's happening for another or for ourselves, how our lives are formed and shaped. And I have on um, one of the walls in my my office at home where I work um, a piece of well, it's, it's, it's a very beautifully made little piece of paper with some words on it, and sort of nicely, sort of trimmed around the edges by someone who was here on retreat quite some years ago now, who I I, uh, I had some regular meeting with over a period of months, and when she left, she gave me this this little quote, and maybe it's familiar to many, but I'd never heard or come across it until it was given to me, and it said, and it says. There isn't anybody you couldn't love once you've heard their story. And there's something very powerful and beautiful in that simple recognition. There isn't anybody, perhaps there isn't any being you couldn't love once you've heard their story. It's like when we know how someone came to be, how they are and what they are, even though we might not necessarily like how somebody is, we might nonetheless have space for our heart to be open to them. And this is something very powerful. And in the, in the practice of, of the Dharma, of the teachings of the Buddha, there's a, a process of transformation, of understanding, of appreciation in the sense of understanding, that I'll, I'll come back to, that's very important in the, the the journey of our heart here. Beginning, however, with this what supports love and kindness, what allows the heart to open here, the, the invitation is to turn towards that which we appreciate, turn towards that which is, um, we could say, the positive side of things. And it's not just a kind of a sort of the kind of more popular sort of of always-look-on-the-bright-side-of-life sort of um, attitude, which can sometimes be kind of in denial about what actually needs attention, what needs to be attended to in our lives and in the world, and in ourselves, of course. But to see that for most of us we have a tendency to focus on the problematic and the negative, and that which we believe or see... (coughs) As needing to be fixed or improved, and and this is um, something we do when we look at ourselves, when we look at other people, when we look at the world, we tend to easily focus on and highlight that which is not as we think it should be. And this this tendency, it's it's worth reflecting on because it's. I don't know if it's universal. Some people get trained to mostly sort of or encouraged and possibly even cajoled in their upbringing to always focus on what's positive. And, you know, if you can't say anything positive about someone, don't say anything at all. And so people walk around not talking very much to each other. You know, um, it's kind of unfortunate because um, we actually need to talk to people when we uh, find there are things that are not easy between us. But if we if we look we see often what underlies this tendency to pick up and notice that which is less sort of evoking of a positive response is our, our basic survival mechanisms which in terms of what you need to notice in a hurry you need to notice what's going to be dangerous to you really quickly as an evolving being and in fact for any sort of uh, creatures pretty much um, you need to notice unless perhaps you're the top predator in a, in, a, in a system but you need to notice if there's something that can eat you around if you're a soft sort of sort of soft and not that fast moving human being you really need to notice if there's a tiger out there you need to notice it really quickly you don't need to notice that quickly if there are some apples on the tree because you know if you miss them the first time they're still there if you miss the tiger the first time that's it. It's all over. No no second chance. And so we tend to be on the lookout for that which may threaten, may be dangerous. And that kind of translates into that which isn't quite as I prefer it, as I like it, as I wish for it. And it's easy for us to get an unbalanced perspective of ourselves, of others, of the world based on the strength of that tendency to seek out, to highlight and to focus on that which is not okay, and there's an invitation when we engage in the practice of Metta of loving kindness to actually turn to what we might, what we might appreciate, what we might value. It's like that T-shirt slogan I remember seeing. It's probably a long time ago. Something like, you know, I may not be perfect, but parts of me are excellent. And yet, how hard it is for us to be able to tune in that direction. As, um, as a, a line from the s- speech given by Kurt Vonnegut, the author, to a, um, a sort of graduation or commencement, I think it's called in America, class at um, MIT. And one of the piece of advice that he was offering to the to the students who are graduating, he, he said, um, "Remember all the compliments you have received in your life. Forget all the insults," he said. And if you can figure out how to do this, tell me. Because <laughs> it's really not easy, is it? And again, it's that same tendency. We can, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's interesting. There, there might be some, you know, responses one gets from something one has done. And five people might say, that was wonderful. And one person says, that was rubbish. And what do we go home remembering? There's a reasonable chance for many of us it's that. And likewise someone might do ten wonderful things, but the one thing they did that really got on my goat, that's what somehow sticks in the day. And there's a there's a conscious training that's involved in here and actually seeing what's the what's the real balance here? What's needed. It doesn't mean disregarding our capacity to recognise what's Unwholesome. what's harmful, what's dangerous, what's unskillful. And at times to actually say, no, that's, that's not okay. Or, in fact, this needs attention, this needs to be addressed. It's not to disregard or deny the importance and the necessity of that capacity, but to see, for many of us, we're well enough trained in that capacity And to bring balance, and and dharma practice is always about finding balance, the balance between extremes, the middle way. To bring balance, we need to attend to the wholesome. We need to attend to that which we might appreciate in ourselves and in others. And in that way, reconnect with a sense of trust in the goodness of our life and the goodness of, of the lives around us and the life around us. So, when we look, when we consider what we're engaged in this practice, one of the foundations of what we're doing is really the understanding the law of karma, of action and result. What happens for us at an inner level and in the outer realms is primarily in terms of the well-being and happiness we most fundamentally experience, it's determined by the orientation we come to our actions from, where we are in ourselves. And we might have some understanding of this. We might recognize this. It's not such an esoterical, complicated thing to see that actually when we live from a place of selfishness, or greed, or when we disregard the impact of our actions on others, or seek to disregard others and trying to get what we want, that actually it causes harm, it causes suffering. That we know this for ourselves, we've been the subject of it, all of us, in different ways. And we've perhaps also at times found ourselves acting in such ways. The very mechanisms and processes that we get to see and begin to pay attention to of trying to take hold of or push away in the inner processes of how we relate to our experience, we see they're expressed outwardly in a, in a form of, um, of, of selfishness or aggressiveness in the world. And in small ways and of course in large ways we see also selfishness and aggression playing out in the world. And there's so much pain, there's so much suffering that comes of these things. And, of course, in seeing that, we might wish for them to come to an end. And understandably, naturally. And yet we might, even as we wish for them to come to an end, we might see them. Not just playing out in the world, splashed on the front pages of newspapers, but actually arising in ourselves, playing out in ourselves. And this is not easy. This is not easy to open to and see. Oh, gosh, too, in this human being too. Yeah, at times selfishness, at times greediness, at times not just irritation, but actually aggression. It's like, I want to get rid of that thing, that person, that situation. There can be a lot of energy that comes with this. And it's important to not judge the arising of these experiences because to judge them, to reject them, is actually to reinforce the tendency of the heart to close here. What's important to understand is that these mechanisms are born of an underlying attempt to take care of our well-being or the well-being of what we care about. If you reflect on it, if you think about it, whenever we're in a place of selfishness, or we were reacting in an aggressive or angry way to something or someone, it's because at some level we understand or believe that to be what we need to do, to take care, to get what I need, to protect myself from harm, to get what the things I care about and the people I care about need, and to protect them also from harm. That's what those mechanisms are trying to serve. And so... In the practice, we're invited to to consider and to see what possibilities we have for acting from a different place, to act from non-greed, from non-hatred, from non-selfishness, which expresses itself as generosity, from non-aggression, which actually expresses itself as kindness. Even the simple act of allowing something to have the space to exist is an expression of kindness. Just letting something be just refraining from that subtle or not so subtle push towards some part of my experience that says, no, this is not welcome here. This is actually a kindness for ourselves and for others when we act and when we orient our action in this way. And in a certain way, we can see that learning to let go of that tendency to take hold of, learning to let be in response to that pushing away mechanism that in fact it might look like it's something kind and noble but it could equally be an expression of what maybe could be described as enlightened self-interest so like understanding what really takes care of us what actually really looks after us is this and so we we practice we cultivate this capacity this orientation, this response, or this way of responding. And it requires us to be, to be awake, to be present, to be here, or else the unconscious, habitual, reactive patterns simply play out again and again and again. And so there's this possibility of not just cultivating a mindfulness, but a heartfulness. A sense of being in touch with the caring that moves our life. And nothing moves in our life apart from that we care. There's there's nothing that happens apart from that. Even if it seems like what's happening is, I don't care at all. At some level, that's because that's what we've come to believe or understand, even not consciously, is the way to take care of what we need to take care of. And so the quality, the practice and the development of loving kindness is so important. And I don't think this is news to us. I'm not saying things here. I expect you haven't got some good sense of yourself already. But there's ways in which we need to look at this perhaps that allow that to actually be more fully and deeply facilitated. Because it's one thing to say, yes, I recognize the value of this. But to actually understand... What is it that makes it hard for us to connect with that possibility? When we might easily recognise, yes, more kindness, more love in the world, more kindness, more love in my heart and in my life, would be a good thing. But it doesn't just happen because we think it's a good thing. We need to understand the mechanisms. And what we what we notice, what we can see sometimes very clearly, is that in the response to what is difficult, what is painful, what is scary, what is threatening in life, we tend to want to protect ourselves by contracting, by tightening. And it's kind of like there's this This very primary mechanism that goes right back to the first sort of single-celled organisms floating around in the ocean, which was basically like this little bag of juice floating around in this really big body of juice, of of liquid, and, and coming into contact with something toxic. It needs to tighten up, close down to make sure none of that stuff gets in. And then when something is nutritious, it needs to expand and open and let all its pores soak in. What's around it. And of course, it's got to be quick because if it's all open and soaking things in, then something toxic comes along. It needs to tighten. And we can notice there's this tightening, this contracting. Even though feeling open is something we, we maybe understand as what we long for, what we wish for, we can't just do it necessarily. But this mechanism we can start to understand. It's hard for us to be open when faced with pain, with fear, with danger. And the the caring that underlies all that moves is something that sometimes we feel out of touch with. It's not available to us. It's not what seems to be moving in the conscious, in the surface sense of what we actually are feeling our reactions are driven by. So to understand how that happens, what it is that blocks that, what it is that closes that possibility down? As we understand that, that caring naturally shines forth. So one of the things, of course, that we do to try and protect ourselves completely understandably is this kind of closing down, this kind of tightening that happens. As I said, and yet the effect of it, of course, is a sense of of feeling cut off, of feeling disconnected, which is deeply painful to us, and a place from which it's hard to feel our heart. It's hard to feel a sense of warmth and friendliness and connection when we're feeling withdrawn, when we're feeling contracted, when we're feeling tight. And so much of the discomfort we encounter at times in our bodies is those places in which that tightness, that habitual contraction has somehow become, we could say, somatized. It's become embedded or expressed into the body as a way of handling it, as a way of holding it. And sometimes the discomfort and the pains and the unease of just sitting with our body and our breath and our life is some of that just coming back into consciousness. It's become so tight we've stopped even feeling it. And as we start to feel it again, it hurts, it's uncomfortable, it's sore, it aches, it twinges, it tingles. But it's actually coming back to life. And so, it's so often for us that it feels what we need to protect ourselves from is this that is painful and difficult. Because we feel somehow cut off by the effect of that experience. That which is painful leads us to a feeling of isolation and disconnection because we contract in response to it. Because we tighten in response to it habitually, unconsciously, inevitably. Until we've learned different, inevitably we do that. And yet that's not the only way we can experience it when we tend to identify with the pain as, it's happening to me, it's being done to me we contract we feel separate when we see that it's something that's shared that it's something that's part of all life we can perhaps begin to hold it differently and and uh, The uh, poet Naomi Shia-Nai, a Palestinian-American woman, she writes on this theme, I think, very beautifully, a poem entitled Kindness. She says, Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Native American in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, How he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must also know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrow. And you must see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for. Then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. So as we open to the shared experience of what is difficult in life, and this is something that happens, and it's one of the powerful benefits of the, the, the group meetings that we have on the retreats, that we hear each other, and sometimes we hear shared the things that are challenging and difficult. Equally, we sometimes hear what is lovely, and we can connect with that too, but sometimes we hear the shared challenges. And There's an interesting and sweet and powerful way how when we start to get that, oh yes, I see those things that I experience reflected in the experience of others too. That somehow that which is painful and difficult and challenging for us actually brings us closer when we share it. When we speak it, when we allow it to be known. When we don't try and cover it over and pretend that this isn't there. Or that somehow it wouldn't be there if we just kind of had figured it all out and done it perfectly. Because it's part of life for us all. And in that connection, we start to become more willing to open, to realize, oh, this that touches our heart with tenderness actually brings us closer. But of course, what we also find is that it's not just the withdrawal from the pain or the difficult or the Tender that we find ourselves closing down. It's not just that withdrawal, it's actually also the mechanism whereby we start to push away at that which we judge or blame. Where we see harm, where we see threat or aggression, or someone or some group of people acting in disregard for the welfare of others, we might <coughs> naturally feel anger. We might imagine it's appropriate to feel hatred. We might think this is, of course, what should be done. And yet the effect of it is to disconnect us even more. There's a, a lovely st- story of a, of a conversation between a radio, I think it was a radio interviewer, and His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, um, where the, the interviewer was asking His Holiness about how he seemed to be so kind of sort of friendly and always sort of laughing and sort of even referring with quite sort of a sense of warmth towards the the Chinese government who had treated him so harshly, it seems. And he said, you know, they've taken my country. They've destroyed my monasteries. They've killed and harmed so many of my people and the monks and nuns of my community. They've taken from me everything they could take. Should I let them take my heart as well? Such a powerful, such a beautiful wisdom to see that to keep our heart open is that that part of what's here that no one actually can take from us without our conscious or unconscious assent to that process. Of course often our heart closes unconsciously we don't realize it's happening we're not quite aware we somehow feel that it's right that we should our experience of anger or hatred feels justified to reject that which is causing harm in the world and that in ourselves which seems harmful too now It's important to understand that these reactions, strong and powerful as they can be, have a place, and the place is actually the energy that is brought forth from seeing and being open to where there is harm being done, where action is taking place that is causing harm. The energy that rises needs to be channeled towards being able to say no, to say stop, to act, to protect, to care for what is being harmed, but not by rejecting or taking out or putting outside of our heart that which appears to be the cause of the harm. To do so is to simply perpetuate the mechanism that leads to that kind of behaviour, where some person or some community or some part of life has somehow been left outside of the field of care from someone else when they've acted, they haven't included and cared for all that is there. And this is, I mean, it might sound like a nice idea, an interesting possibility. We might not necessarily relate directly to what that might mean, how that is. How could we really know and trust that that is so? And as I said before, everyone is actually trying, from sometimes within a place of considerable lostness, Blindness and confusion, of pain and reactivity, trying to take care of what they care about. Although sometimes the field of that care has been tragically shrunken and narrowed to leave so much outside of what they're regarding, respecting, and valuing in their behavior. And one can understand, and the way I think the only way we can really know this is to look at ourselves, to look at our own life. And this is something that, for me, as a part of my practice, is something I come back to regularly when I can, to look and see, where have I caused harm in the world? Where have I caused harm to others, to myself? Where have I not actually really regarded the impact of my action fully? And if I look and I see in this way, in fact, reliably, I find that at some level, my own sense of fear or my own sense of need for what I felt I must have has led me to disregard the impact on another. My wish to avoid something I didn't think I could handle has led me to kind of push the impact somewhere else, onto someone or something else. To be able to forgive ourselves and others, to forgive the world for the suffering and the pain that is here. We need to understand that it's born of our blindness and an attempt to care that is blind that is not yet in contact with the fullness of wisdom and understanding. So, how might we get a sense of this? How might we understand this? I'd like to just invite you to imagine a scenario that I'm going to describe for you and just allow yourself to sense and feel what it's like as I describe this situation. As if it was happening. Although, of course, we're just imagining it for now. So imagine you're going for a walk in the woods. And enjoying to be in the woods. Could be in a field if you'd rather be in a field. But for me, just walking in the woods. And then at some point, you see a puppy in the woods. And being someone who quite likes small creatures, you reach out to, to stroke it. And the puppy bites you really fiercely in the hand. Just imagine what your response is here. It's like my response is, bad dog. Maybe it's like, I need to teach you a lesson. Or something like, you know, that. And then just as you're having the reaction to having been bitten, and really it's hurting. This, dog is, this puppy has bitten you. You see that its foot is caught in one of those spring-loaded traps that they tragically sometimes put in the woods to catch small creatures. And immediately, something changes, doesn't it? It's like my hand still really hurts. I'm still in pain. I've still been bitten. But I no longer am wanting to punish or blame this creature for what's happening. Because straight away I understand. I've seen. It's in pain. It's in fear. It's desperately calling out for help. And the only way that its system is able to in this moment, which is bitten, me in this case and immediately one actually of course still wants to remove one's hand from the puppy's mouth it's not like oh you're in pain sure chew on my hand it'll help you feel better but actually no I want to help this puppy become free from that trap I want to release it from that condition and then maybe I want to go and have a word to the person who put it there that's sort of a bit later but first of all that sense of what happens when we understand that that which has attacked me is itself in pain. Now imagine a scenario again. This is another, another story, another walk in the woods. Some time later, we've forgotten about the other time when we went walking, um, and we see a puppy, and we just reach out to stroke it. The puppy bites us. Ah, it really hurts. What would it mean? And we look at the puppy. We look at the puppy. We see the puppy's standing deep in leaves up to its shoulders. We can't see its legs. We don't know what's going on in that part of it which is out of sight. What would it mean for us to know straight away, oh, this puppy's caught in a trap? Like If we understood that it's not the nature of puppies to wish to attack, unless they're in pain, unless they're in fear, They don't. So, if we understand that, immediately our response will be to seek to care for this being, equally as to care for ourselves here. The heart can stay open when we understand that it's the nature of all things that live to not actually want to cause harm, except coming out of fear or need. And the fear of need. So perhaps we can consider the possibility of forgiving ourselves for the things that we've done. And forgiving others likewise. The process of forgiveness that invites us also to feel the sorrow for such things that have happened from my own action or the sorrow that they have happened from another's action. To actually allow that sorrow which has a moisture to it that brings a softening. And the moisture that we know sometimes is tears, but also sometimes there's a kind of a, a wobbliness, a softness, a not quite so solidness. Sorrow has the effect of kind of breaking down some of the hard structures that we build for protection and defense. And that there's a softness that comes. There's a moistness that comes from allowing ourselves to feel that and to understand that it's not necessary, it's not useful here to blame or to judge or to attack. That's different than our ability to respond to protect ourselves or to protect another. And so it's also important here to recognize that. Our heart might not so easily open if we're still subject to that sense of threat or to harm. Sometimes we need to find some safety or some protection or some support before we can do the work of opening our heart in relationship to someone we have found difficult or threatening or dangerous or such a situation. Um, One of my teachers in America, Michelle McDonald-Smith, I remember she described rather rather sweetly and beautifully on occasion she was talking about seeking to practice friendliness and kindness towards someone she found really difficult and she said, you know, the only way I could ever do metta for this person was if I, if I imagined them tied to a chair. <laughs> <laughs> and it's something kind of very beautiful and sweet in that. Of course, it's not that she's actually going to go and tie this person up. Though maybe she might have wished to. Maybe there's the time it would have been a good thing. But it's more like, okay, yeah, I need to understand myself in a place where I'm safe here. Safety is actually really important. Of course, the deeper safety is knowing that we can actually keep our heart open, even in the face of the challenges of life. The greater fear, that we don't conceive it this way, is not that we'll encounter the difficult, That because of our reaction to the difficult, we'll close down and become disconnected. That's actually the deeper suffering that we are threatened by when we're in the face of that which is difficult. And as we learn and as we practice to open in this way, we see again that kindness is not passive. Kindness is not just, oh, I'll just let people do whatever they want to me or to the world. No, it's actually sometimes quite fierce and quite powerful. I was profoundly touched by the story. I, I think I first read in a book of uh, Jack Cornfield's about a, a woman, an African American woman, in um, I think California, whose, whose young teenage boy was walking on the street one day, minding his own business, and another young man came up to him and just with a knife stabbed him and killed him. And she went to the trial of this this. This other young man. And in the course of the trial, it came out that this was a young boy who had been in a gang. And, or he was trying to get into a gang, and the, 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 the qualification for getting into the gang was to kill someone. So he just chose randomly this other young boy, her son. And at the end of the trial, he was found guilty. He was sent to a, 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 a youth offenders' institution to be incarcerated. In a, in a young person's prison. and just before he left and was taken away from the, the trial, she looked at him she said she, it's she's like fixed her gaze upon him and said, "I'm going to kill you and walked down. And then this young man was taken away locked up and sometime later she wrote him a letter, just inquiring after him, saying hello, and another. And after a little while, they actually started a correspondence. And then at some point she said, can I come and visit you? And she did. And it's quite a long story in one sense. But they got to know each other. She got to know him. She got to hear his story, how he grew up with his parents. Not really present, they were, I think... I don't. I can't, I can't remember the detail, whether it was drugs or gang. Anyway, he didn't really have any support. He was living on the streets from a young age. The only way to survive was to find support or a family, which for him would take the form of a gang, and this is what he had to do, just to get his own sense of safety, was to join the gang so he'd do whatever that took. And she really got to know this young person to the point where when... It came the time that his sentence was finished. (coughs) She came to him and said, you know, I have a spare room in my house. And if you'd like to come and live with me, you could. And he was quite flabbergasted. And and she said, please come and live with me. And he, he didn't have anywhere else to go, so he went. And at some point, somewhere further down the line, she sat down with him and she said, you know, I'd like to adopt you. And he he was still sort of like, kind of surprised. And he said, but I can't forget what you said to me in in the courtroom. And she said, yes, and I meant it. I did not want that in you which could kill my son, my beloved son, without even knowing him. I did not want that to survive and continue. And I think it's no longer in you. I think that has died. And the love and the connection that's there has done this. And it's something for me just so amazing to contemplate this. The wisdom of this woman. To see that what needed to die here was not the young man. But the fear, the loneliness, the anger, the hatred, the alienation and the disconnection that was acting through her. And when that is taken away, in fact, she found another young man to care for in her life. Something amazing that can happen when someone can see what's really happening here. To see ourselves, to see each other in that way is profoundly transforming, profoundly powerful. It doesn't mean we don't act, sometimes fiercely and courageously, but that we do so including even those who we might see to be the cause, or believe and imagine to be the cause of what needs to be changed and transformed. Understanding it's not them, it's what has taken hold inside that needs to be shifted, moved and transformed. And so when the Buddha spoke of loving kindness as the whole of our practice, not it's not just half our practice being for the development, the cultivation of this, what might he have meant by this? It seems to me that what these teachings and practices begin to reveal as we go deeply into them is that this quality of kindness and of love that underlies it. We talk about loving kindness. Kindness is the expression of that loving. It has the effect of healing, the sense of separation. The sense of distance, of difference, of disconnect, of apartness, of otherness between ourself and what we call the world or another. That the the nature of love and its fulfillment in its fruition is that it sees through the appearance of separation the apparent distance between the life that is here and the life that we think is over there the wisdom of love the wisdom and the transforming power it brings is that it it sees not other and acts as if what is here is not other than what is there. What is there is not other than what is here. And caring for any part of it is only effective when caring for all of it. And from this place of love the experience of separation dissolves. And the very awakened nature of of life, the heart of existence is is clearly shown to have an unstoppable and boundless benevolence to naturally wish for the well-being of all of life is the Inevitable outcome of understanding, seeing deeply that life itself cannot be separated from itself, that there is a a dissolving of the appearance of boundaries, and in that condition love is boundless, and life is unbound. And it is this that our practice invites us to know and to live the deep truth of. So let's just sit quietly together for a few moments. us here together and in our lives, may we come to know and abide in the boundless heart of life that sees through the appearance of separation, in which care and kindness radiates unstoppably through time and space to embrace all beings and all life. for our own welfare for the welfare of all beings for the well-being of all that is